Hello and welcome to That Science, exploring the meaning of science today. I'm your host, Amelia Doran. Our episode of What's Science this week is all about the scientific method. In my discussion with Nell and Max on objectivity, we mentioned how much of modern science focuses on how we can get as close as possible to the truth using scientific methods, and how factors like repeats or standardised methodologies affect whether science is accepted as correct. This week, we'll explore how the scientific method evolved and what it means for science today with Freya Anderson, another student on the science communication course. She also writes for the Mancunian, so keep an eye out for an article about your two favourite podcast hosts coming out soon. For now, here's our thoughts on the scientific method. Hi Freya, thank you so much for joining us. Hello Amelia. Do you want to uh, start off by just giving a little introduction about you and your degree? Yep, so I did my undergraduate in chemistry at the University of Liverpool and now I'm doing a master's in science communication here at Manchester. Cool. And what bit of chemistry did you focus on? Did you have any specifics? Yeah, so I did it on hydrogels, which are kind of like polymers, but they're more bio-based, so they can be injected into the human body. And I focused on this diabetic applications. Oh, that's quite cool. So kind of, yeah, chemistry, almost sliding into like biochemistry with me. Yeah. Love that. Love that. We love some biochemistry. (laughs) So today's episode is all about the scientific method, but I thought we'd start off by looking at how we define science, because one of the articles we looked at had a really interesting definition of science. So I'm going to ask you to read yours first. I'll read mine, and then we'll read the other one and discuss them a little bit. Lovely. Yeah, so I think science is a practice, and it's not necessarily a collection of facts in a textbook. It's about how you work and what you know. Oh, interesting. Okay, so mine... I meant slightly more formal maybe, but that's fine. I said science is the study of the world around us using observation or experimentation, which is reproducible and objective. Those were the big things to me. And I think mine's quite similar to the one which is from HowStuffWorks.com, which is science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the structure and behaviour of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation. I like all these keywords. Yeah, like <laughs> you've got observation and experimentation kind of. Yeah the key I think that is the practice isn't it yeah that's what you expect from science but you've also got the intellectual and practical activity I thought that was interesting yeah because it is a practical course and I think people forget that when you learn it when you're younger you're just learning facts but then when you get to uni it's so hands-on yeah and I think the higher you get through the subjects as you said the more and more practical it becomes I thought it was really interesting and the the physical and natural world I thought was interesting as well like reading those two I don't know because I think we're more used to physical sciences and life sciences. That's normally how universities split the departments. Yeah. And like I always find it weird, chemistry is a physical science. But I think it's just how people would technically see them. I think this allows me to come up with my great theory of science, which is, I don't know, I see all of science as sort of a big circle. Yeah. You go through from like ecology through to biology and you can go into chemistry and then physics and come around and back to astrophysics and that's back to the world and geography and then back to ecology and like a big circle but yeah I think it's interesting specifically to split them but yeah so I guess the scientific method I don't know is it something that you were familiar with was it talked about a lot at school yeah I think I remember my I had a primary school teacher called Mrs Salter and she really liked teaching us about maths and science she was so heavy on learning about the experimental method and like clear definitions of each step of it and then I think when you get to uni you can chop and change between them it's not always such a straightforward process and that's the challenges of research Yeah, I think, I mean, I had a really weird scientific childhood. Yeah. Because I didn't actually start science as a subject until year seven. 
and so I think when I got dumped into year seven chemistry as its own subject or biology or physics I think yeah I immediately was like I don't know what you're trying to get me to do when they were like write down your hypothesis yeah was not something that made sense to me I was more familiar with science as shove some stuff in a pot and see what happens that's the fun part exactly I wish it was all that so I think it's funny that now obviously I'm looking back at that understanding of science and it's a very different understanding I would never have come up with the definition of it being you know objective and reproducible when I was a kid I was just like you're just finding stuff out but I think the scientific method learning that is when you start to learn science as a a formal thing yeah and I think at undergrad I never really thought about the bigger impact of science I was always like yeah I do this 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 and I do it in a fume hood and then when you do the postgrad in science communication there's so much more social historical process that goes through it and then you start to think about oh what does the scientific method mean why do we do it why a scientist needs to be held accountable for things so maybe at this point we should give a little definition of the scientific method yeah so there are a couple of different iterations of it but broadly using how stuff works definition you start by making some observations from the world around you and that allows you to think of some questions that you want to research from those questions you can formulate your hypothesis which is what you think is going to happen and then you develop testable predictions with your testable predictions in mind you can then gather data and refine or alter your experiment if you need to until you successfully get some data and when you analyse that data that then allows you to create some sort of general theories. and we have a couple of people who are connected to that and how it developed but sort of the most recognisable names are Roger and Francis Bacon who interestingly even though they share a last name no relation I looked that up no and relation. it's a strange last name isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah you wouldn't think you would assume I mean I know there were different time periods but yeah absolutely no evidence of being related which is interesting but you have Roger Bacon who his method was observation then hypothesis then experimentation and then Francis Bacon introduced your inductive reasoning so observation experimentation analysis and then you do your inductive reasoning on that So again, that was maybe something that really stuck out to me was the intellectual part of how stuff works definition of science as like applying reasoning to what you're doing. Yeah. And I think my experience of science that I did at university, there was very little on both sides of there. You know, I wasn't really doing observation of the world around us or taking my findings and applying them back to the world around us. I just did the very little we have some evidence that this might happen. Let's actually get more evidence. Okay, we've got the evidence and now it does happen. Yeah. And that kind of middle bit, I guess, is the bit that we focused on a lot more. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, sometimes it'd be like you've got a lab book and you work through all of these experiments and you're not really sure how they link, apart from the fact you might repeat a process in some of them. And yeah, I think it should be more you understand why how this came about and why it's important to the world now. Yeah. yeah, I think that kind of circle of taking stuff, taking observations out of the world, and then when you get to the end, applying them back to the world. Yeah. It gives you a much more holistic view yeah. of science than you get from kind of the day to day. Just, I mean, my one specifically, I was looking at an enzyme and my supervisor had kind of subtle evidence that this enzyme might do something it's not supposed to. And then the end of my project was just it does do that thing right and that was kind of the end of it and I'm sure you know she'll take on that evidence to go further with it but at the end I was kind of like well 
I don't know that doesn't really have any implications on the world around us or nothing that we can say for certain. I think the method kind of generalizes in a way that doesn't show how much data you need to collect in the middle maybe. Yeah and the research that you can do in the lab like in your undergrad for your dissertation isn't the be all and end all of that area of research. It relies so much on so many scientists piecing together what they have. It's not the full story. Like you said, like you've got the enzyme part. You need someone else to do like the application of it in the next step. So yeah, that's that's the annoying part, I guess, with researchers. You can't see the full extent of it unless you work on it for years and years. Yeah. And maybe I think that's why, you know, I was looking at the scientific method and I was like, well, I don't think that really applies to any of the science I did. But I think it also, yeah, as you said, in your day-to-day science, in our little projects that we did at university, we were probably doing a very small part yeah of that process which actually takes place over months or years you know and everything connects that's a scary thing so we've established we kind of have some familiarity with it and definitely it's something that is very much pushed in school but do you think there's an importance to it and why do you think maybe it is pushed as much in school i think establishing a set of rules or practices parameters you may say things that scientists work by is important because you want everyone to be reading from the same book. Everyone's research is so different, but you want to be able to read anyone's stuff and be able to understand it. And if everyone follows the same kind of thought process, it's much easier to engage with the research. But I think, you know, in some of the readings that we've been doing for the policy module particularly, you also do want to teach scientists to be naturally inquisitive and challenge a set of rules because that's the only way you're going to get new discoveries. So I think you need a good balance of the two. You need people who are going to follow a set of rules and produce work that's readable and digestible but you want people who will you know change the way that science is done yeah i guess that kind of relates to paul oh i'm gonna butcher this name paul (laughs) feverband who said that kind of anything goes that was his philosophy that science should be whatever is most useful for science to become oh that sounds Um, very dodgy doesn't it love that (laughs) but uh yeah i think why it's stressed to us so much as kids is that kind of standardization like whatever science becomes you know it's got some foundation because Mm. it's come from this process but at the same time you know if you're looking at astrophysics versus psychology you imagine that they're going to have very different processes and so sometimes that can be really difficult and i think one of the things that's stressed as well especially by Feather Bram, I'm going to go with that name, we'll see, Um, is specifically that a lot of discoveries that were really important didn't come from a very strict scientific method. And things happen by chance as well. I mean, you know, Edison tried 3,000 times to make the light bulb and obviously he followed a method to do that, but Fleming found penicillin completely by chance and that was just as important for us. And I remember at uni when I was doing the polymerization experiments, we were trying for like weeks to try to get it to work. And basically I stabbed myself with one of the balloon needles. And then I put that needle into the experiment. So it had a little bit of my blood on it. And it was the first time I got the experiment to work. And I was like, why has this worked out of all the times that I've tried? But yeah, it's yeah, you don't you never know what's going to make a difference. Absolutely. I think that that playfulness is really important. And I think it also allows you to view science as something that's a bit more of a work in progress. I think one of maybe the big issues with the scientific method that I see is that you have to come up with a hypothesis and I think you can get so stuck on that hypothesis that it becomes very difficult to accept that it might be wrong. I don't know, maybe that's my conspiracy theory, spidey senses tingling, but I think, yeah, it can be really difficult to accept the value in it not being right 
one moment where I noticed this, sorry for bringing up your trauma, Anita, but one of my friends who was doing the same project as me, she really struggled to get results. The methodology that she was using just didn't allow her to get the results that they had been looking for. And I remember this insistence that the methodology is wrong and I think she also immediately looked at that and was like, this is going to be really difficult to do anything with. And I think it's really unusual to be able to look at something that goes wrong and say there's value in this you know there's learning in this and I think I apologize for you having to go through that Anita but also for me it was quite a valuable learning experience on the outside to go okay but you know you still have done a thing and it's important to know that it doesn't work and we can work out why it doesn't work. Yeah and I was reading something the other day and it was about um, should scientists publish when the experiment didn't work or you've done all this research and you couldn't prove anything and I was like bad results are just as important well what, what we think of as bad results are just as important as getting what you want and maybe if you started publishing when things don't work people would respect it a lot more when it happens in the lab you'd be like oh this is still significant it means something I can apply this. I think it was something that we talked about at the beginning of one of our modules about how publishing when things don't work doesn't happen. And so all we see in the journals going back in time is lots of successes. And actually being able to see the failures and working out why they were failures is quite important in terms of understanding scientific progress, I guess. Yeah. And like you need to understand that that happens all the time in the lab as well. Like you can work on something for ages and it won't work. And that's okay. So the next bit, I wanted to discuss all about inductive and deductive reasoning. So is that something that you've kind of come across before? I have come across it, but I would like some definitions. Maybe the listeners would Amazing. like some definitions. Amazing, absolutely. So this is my this is my thing that I know <laughs> because um, part, yeah, part of my time at school, I did the IB curriculum mm-hmm. and in the sick form, you have to do this subject called theory of knowledge. Yeah. We call it talk. And shout out to the wonderful Mr. Gates and Mr. Nichols at my school. But we went through this a lot. Essentially, both inductive and deductive reasoning are ways of coming up with theories. So in induction, you're looking at observations around you and analysing them to come up with your, your theory or your conclusion. So, for example, if you walked into Whitworth Park and you saw all the trees didn't have any leaves on them, but you know that you'd been there three months ago in the summer and they had leaves, you could induce that these trees lose their leaves during the winter. And then on the other hand, deduction would say, okay, if you know that deciduous trees lose their leaves in winter and you walked into the park and saw that the trees didn't have leaves, you could conclude that these are deciduous trees. So it's sort of an inverse relationship. You're either going from the specific to the general or the general to the specific. Also, to note, one of people's favourite facts around inductive and deductive reasoning is obviously Sherlock Holmes always claims deduction, but mostly his methods use inductive reasoning. So he looks at specifics and come to conclusions from that. Now, both of these types of reasoning have sort of been debated throughout the history of the scientific method, whether one is more important than the other. And so I thought maybe we'd have a look at some of the big players in that scene. Again, I did philosophy at sixth form, so this is all right up my street. But so Plato, obviously big figure in just philosophy in general, he basically was quite anti-science. Slay. I know, absolute (laughs) slay. He said all knowledge could be obtained through pure reasoning alone. Skeptical looks. Yeah. (laughs) 
so yeah so he was very much against sort of empiricism and doing experiments and stuff he said if we all sit and think hard enough we can work out everything and that yeah. is deduction right it's taking everything we know so far and channeling down to very specific things mm-hmm. and then his student aristotle who also big player in the old philosophy scene kind of said the reverse and said no no I think we should be doing experiments and making observations and take that and use it to make general theories. So he was sort of the first person to come up with a kind of pseudo scientific method. And so he said, you know, look at what we know so far, do kind of a literature review as we'd see it today, and then make some observations and help you to kind of build a consensus. And then later on, you start to get more and more interplay between the two and how both are needed in science. So you have Ibn Sina, he said we need induction in order to make deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. So we need to have some specific evidence that gives us a general theory so we can then take that general theory and apply it to something specific. I like that. And then Newton said you need both. Obviously, Newton, big player in science, was like, we can't have one without the other. I think now we see kind of the scientific method. You go from something general like in my project, we went from Giardia, our intestinal parasites, and then come through the specifics until we end up with my project question, which was, does Giardia have an enzyme that does something it's not supposed to, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I had my results, you know, we need some more evidence, but we can come back to a general statement about Giardia. And so that progress uses both inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Yeah, I think you need to look at the research that's happened before you that's a big part of the scientific process everyone builds on each other so yeah you need a reasonable amount of understanding about so much science before you can narrow it down to what you're wanting to apply it to yeah that's what we missed maybe when we were doing I remember doing my literature review but I already knew what my question was gonna be yeah and so I was like right I'm gonna do all my research coming to the question that I've been given because you know it would work yeah. You, you want to research something that you know is going to work. You're not looking like, where is the gap in the research necessarily? I think in my head, I see a lot of what we did, especially a lot of what you do in a project where you're doing something within very confined bounds. Yeah. I saw it as kind of colouring in the gaps almost. Yeah. So we're not doing the whole scientific method. As is intended, we're doing a very small part of that data, but basically... I guess the other thing that I wanted to talk about before we go on to alchemy, which is why you're here as our lovely chemist. <laughs> um, I mean, you're here because you're wonderful, but I thought that would be fun for you to discuss. Put my chemistry hat on. Exactly. Was how do we think the scientific method affects the science that we do day to day? I think it's it's good. I think you really need to think of it as a process and it helps a lot if you, like you said, standardise the stuff that you do every day. But I think it's okay to also deviate from it. I think it's also okay. You know, I'm, I'm doing some research into graphene at the minute at the university and they discovered graphene because they were doing what they called fun experiment Fridays where they used to practice methods or experiments that they wouldn't do as part of their strict confines of their research. And I think that's great as well. I think, you know, you should try different things, practice different parts of science. You shouldn't be just doing the stuff that's maybe seen as useful for your project. Learn more about everything. Yeah, it's it's an important structural point. And I think it's one of those things where you need to know the rules in order to break the rules. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. 
sometimes you can't use it to the letter just have a play around exactly and and that is also valid as science i think as long as that playing around you're being very kind of logical and methodological about how you're doing it you know okay i'm gonna alter this thing and then i'm gonna alter this thing and if you do that in stages you might come up with something completely surprising but you've still got that kind of grounding of evidence to go on and I remember when we were trying to do the polymerization to get it to work, my supervisor, Dr. McDonald, was like, why don't you just take a really small sample size and just put loads of initiator into it and see if it'll polymerize? And this is a process that I'd have to leave like running overnight. And I did it in front of it and it took 15 minutes. And I was like, right, clearly you knew that this would work, but it's great to have a play and try change things and see if it will completely change how the reaction works. Yeah, I think the value in that is almost okay you have your hypothesis but it's really useful to be able to go and find a starting point and then work out how that relates to your hypothesis maybe we need to recognize that your hypothesis is useful but also sometimes it can be really unhelpful I think it can limit you yeah and so being able to just play around and decide what's going to happen just by having a play can actually be really helpful in terms of you know if we look back at objectivity which is what we were discussing last time I think in a way sometimes not having an agenda not having that okay this is what's going to happen and this is why I think it's going to happen yeah is the best way to find out what is going to happen because you don't have any expectations on it or like this is what I deem as valuable with my experiment time because it provides some data for my hypothesis everything that you do is valuable you're understanding and you're observing stuff all the time so have a play around yeah, as soon as you have a hypothesis, you have an agenda and you have yeah. a value judgment on what's going to happen. And I guess that feeds into your confirmation bias, but all of it is useful mm. in different ways. And then you might get something surprising if you allow yourself to get surprising results. Yeah, if but, you have the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then I guess the final thing is, so we've talked about the scientific method as kind of a way to standardise or I quite like the idea of formalising science. Yeah. And so that's where alchemy comes in. I really liked the way that they defined it in the article, which was combining spirituality with experimental observation, which I just thought was a nice way to kind of sum up that combination of astronomy and philosophy and religion, but with also practical experimentation. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, my understanding, I don't have a great understanding of it, but I'm very familiar with the idea that everyone was striving to create gold because gold is really valuable. But I didn't realise that, in fact, the founding principle of alchemy is everything should be able to reach perfection yeah and they defined gold as perfection that's quite an interesting way of looking at it that actually what they were doing was saying okay but iron should be able to turn into gold everything should be able to turn into gold because gold is the gold standard the perfect and i guess in a way that is true we could technically turn anything into gold through through some physics. some some way of chemistry or physics yeah, yeah. yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. probably way too over our heads but yeah that sort of we know that we can convert atoms into other atoms by adding protons and neutrons and yeah. electrons or taking them away. It's really interesting that that was the foundation and became the foundation of chemistry. That's pretty cool. So I guess the interesting question is obviously a lot of alchemy then fed into chemistry and you know we still use some of those discoveries today. So do they lose their validity as bits of science because they weren't made within the area of the scientific method? I think I think they're still they're still part of science and they're still important. I think probably the way that people look at it is they were doing it for a personal gain, for a personal value and 
So they're like, oh, that's not proper science. It was just one guy mixing loads of stuff together because he was trying to get this one goal. But at the end of the day, that's still kind of what science is. There's still some kind of agenda. There's still some kind of personal value attached to it. So it still can very much inform what we do today. And yeah, we all started doing science like that. I remember mixing things up and being like, I want to do this because I want to see if it does this. So yeah, there's some kind of like real childish, I think, part of it that you still need to engage with. Yeah, I think I've had experiences where that playfulness has really helped me understand science in a different way to doing something very formal. There's one I can remember specifically where my dad and I did an experiment because I'd asked him why watermelon was sweet. And so we took some watermelon juice and evaporated off all the water and we got left with this sort of syrup thing. And I think we we managed to dry it out. So it was sugar-esque. And I had this moment of, oh, it's sugar. And we could discuss that sugar was in a lot of foods, just not in the way that you maybe saw it. You know, you didn't pour sugar into an apple, but that didn't mean it wasn't there. I think that was a big learning experience for me, something I remember to this day. So yeah, while we discussed, you know, the value of the scientific method is maybe its standardization of science practice, I don't think it takes away value from the the discoveries that were made back then. You know, we discovered entire elements at that point yeah by accident basically there was no scientific method but i guess what you did have was a lot of alchemists were very good at recording what they did and trying to work out why actually a really good book on it if you haven't read it is periodic tales by hugh aldy williams he goes into a lot of the backstory behind a lot of elements as he kind of goes through the periodic table trying to collect them Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting and he includes a lot of like the sociology behind it would highly recommend i'll put it in the show notes if anyone's interested but i think there's there's so many discoveries that happened before science was formal and I think the formalization of science was a lot of just introducing the scientific method yeah but I think it's yeah interesting to think that nowadays if someone doesn't follow the scientific method to some degree I'm like okay how how much do we trust what you've created how much do we accept your science as science but also a lot of the foundations of science today were based on those ideas for example if we look at the work of one alchemist in particular Jabir ibn Hayyan also known as Abu Jabir um so he moved the elements from fire water earth and air to metals spirits which can be evaporated and then stones which can be powderized basically and that was the foundation then of the periodic table that we have today but we can also say well you can vaporize a metal you can powderize a metal you know stone is not an element it's a compound normally yeah you've got a lot of interesting questions there about it was a really good foundation for what's happening now but at the same time you know it's not right at the end of the day yeah and all of those the judgments that he made or the calls that he made about how to categorize elements was informed by his practical applications like he said the stones that can be powdered so he's not doing it like in theory with a chalkboard or anything he's saying from my own experience this is how i would separate them and like even today i think chemists would probably say that's how i would also separate them oh these are all the liquids and these are all the solids and these are all the little like minerals and powders so yeah i think it's still very much applies today about how you your observations and how you work inform how you categorize things yeah and i think the other bit that i found really interesting was looking at how alchemy became chemistry and i was saying to you the other day actually when we were talking about this that i didn't realize that chemist or chemistry came from chemist which was an abbreviation or a slang term for alchemist and so one directly became the other through you know a series of 
steps I think that was really interesting and seeing specifically it was Robert Boyle who I have definitely heard of in terms of his gas equations yeah and who moved it through and he was the one that suggested that in fact all compounds were made up of a unit and that unit was what we'd see as a molecule now I think he had a really cool name for it it was corpuscules was his name for what we would see that sounds very medical doesn't it it does it feels like it has a certain oozingness I think to it the imagery (laughs) but you've got that kind of very interesting movement into formal science I think a lot of our science now is I mean a lot of chemistry is absolutely around how can we take things and work out what elements they're made of or how can we take elements and make them into things yeah it's kind of what we take as chemistry now but yeah I don't know there's a lot more kind of clinicalness to it now that Mm. whereas I think when I saw it written down as that definition, I was like, yeah, that's chemistry. But I don't think it's what I had in my head as chemistry. Yeah, and I think when we transitioned from alchemy to chemistry, when you were saying all of the science that informs alchemy, like philosophy and astrology and all of this, that kind of fell away when it became pure chemistry and a lot less about the social impact of what we were doing or the personal motivations. It became more like a pure science, basic research kind of thing. So, yeah. That's how it changed, how it evolved, how it became the modern day, what we think of it as. This empirical thing that can't be changed by the social setting that it's in, maybe. Yeah, I think a lot of that came from just saying, okay, let's stop basing our foundations on a religious thought and move it towards observation and kind of the introduction of the scientific method. That was what ultimately made science science rather than alchemy. Mm. which is really interesting um but yeah i think that's everything so thank you so much for joining us that's okay thanks for having me no it's been a pleasure thanks again to freya for her interesting insights into the world of alchemy and the scientific method and also as i said for her amazing article on us which will be out soon and we'll share on socials when it is as always in the show notes you'll find the articles we read to prepare as well as some links to explore the topics we discussed in more detail If you don't already, please do go follow us over on Instagram and Twitter at ThatSciencePod for updates on new episodes and some behind-the-scenes content. Thanks again for listening and tune in for next week's episode of Is That Science with Susan.